Welcome to episode 49 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is my fellow analyst, Angel Sag. So let's get started with my first topic. So this week, DISH and AWS announced uh, a partnership where Amazon is going to help DISH deploy their 5G RAN and core infrastructure on a public cloud-based platform. Is it a winning strategy? And from my perspective, it is. So you know, we've talked about greenfield deployments with 5G, with Reliance and in India, Rakuten in Japan, and you know certainly Dish in the U.S. And uh, I think it's actually exciting because it's uh, it's it's the first deployment, you know, within a public cloud infrastructure, and it should promise to bring operational and capital expenditure savings. What's your take, Angel? I think it's a good fit. Um, I think Amazon's in a really good place right now, especially AWS, when it comes to the uh, size of their cloud infrastructure. Um, I think they're probably the best choice right now um, as far as somebody wanting to go out and roll out a new 5G network. Mm -hmm. So it's a good fit. Um, and I think it's going to be pretty good for a lot of companies that want to experiment with 5G and potentially grow with a new network operator like a dish. Um, so we'll see what ends up happening there. But uh, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic considering that they chose Amazon for this. Yeah, you know, and from my perspective, you know, when you look at the big public cloud providers, I mean, certainly Google has a telco, um, you know, um, focus and organization. I think they're probably in the third position. <clears throat> Azure, you know, with Microsoft, they, they've made some key acquisitions to uh, bring them up to the foray. But certainly, you know, I think dish picking Amazon was a safe bet given that they're definitely in the pole position with respect to Telco Cloud and what they're doing with, with Outpost and Wavelength, you know, sort of supercharging the whole 5G, you know, deployment experience. So I agree with you, like, it'll be interesting to sort of watch this. Um, and uh, it could be, you know, you know, a great catalyst for other, you know, operators like Verizon uh, to embrace, you know, cloud infrastructure and open RAN uh, to reduce some of their, their capital expenditures. I know you're going to speak about some updates with Verizon later in the podcast, so I won't steal your thunder there. But let's move to your first topic this week, and you want to talk about Verizon. So that's a great segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's been a lot of news uh, when it comes to Verizon today uh, or this week in general. So one of the things was that uh, they added more cities to their millimeter wave deployment. Mm -hmm. So they added New Orleans, uh, Fresno, and Riverside, as well as San Antonio. Um, that brings their 5G millimeter wave cities to 71. Um, in addition to that, they've also had a new promotional offer that will um, offer people $500 to leave their, op their existing broadband provider and throw in a uh, Samsung Chromebook 4 in along with the offer, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a sounds very much like a educational play for people who have people kids who are still you know going to school from sure. home or doing you know these hybrid approaches now that a lot of kids are going back to school so that is in addition to the fact that uh verizon also tapped samsung and ericsson for their mid-band 
C-band deployment. So that is a, a big one because they're tapping two of the leaders in the, in the space for their infrastructure. And the, the thing is, is that when you look at Samsung's massive MIMO radios and what Ericsson comes to offer, it, it's gonna be a very interesting rollout. That said, the spectrum won't be free till December. So they have some time to build this up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that they're gonna be running, they're gonna hit the ground running in December. And they're, they're claiming that they're going to have hundred million pops by the end of March. So they're, okay. they're basically giving themselves a quarter to do that. But I have a feeling that most of that momentum will, will start in December and, and just keep rolling through March. Um, in addition to all that news, Verizon also reported earnings. And um, what's interesting about their earnings was they actually showed um, re- revenue growth, but they lost wireless customers. Okay. Which um, didn't necessarily look great because they lost 178,000 while some other operators who we'll be talking about next uh, gained some. So it's it's definitely a, a transformative time for Verizon as a company, yeah. um, but they are definitely going to have to commit some serious resources and capital, which we've talked in previous top podcasts about, uh, that they're going to need to do to get this C-band uh, band deployed. Yeah, you know, I agree. You know, it seems like Verizon has been on their heels recently, you know, sort of being very, you know, reactive with respect to, you know, C-band and that sort of thing. And that's a great segue to my second topic this week, and it's AT&T earnings. And so AT&T did report positive subscriber um, um, additions, um, as well as a 5% revenue increase, which, you know, I find is, uh, it's actually, you know, quite amazing as, you know, folks exit, you know, sort of the pandemic, we begin to put that in the rearview mirror, hopefully. And, um, but what I'm most impressed with is the cash balance that AT&T has on their balance sheet. And, you know, it's in, it's in, you know, the multi-billions, I think nine, $10 billion and, you know, in cash. And that's going to be really important to make needed investments, you know, be very surgical with those investments, but make the needed investments for them to, not only densify their network, but also, you know, they, they purchased considerable C-band assets in the last auction as well. And um, so I think they're very well positioned. You know, I think WarnerMedia continues to be a, a, a key differentiator for them. Um, they're bringing original content, you know, whereas, you know, like T-Mobile and Verizon, they're sort of repackaging, you know, different things for their consumer, you know, um, services uh, to get there. So I would like to see AT&T lean more into Warner Media. I think, um, you know, beyond just offering HBO Max, you know, as, you know, no additional charge, if you are a, uh, an AT&T mobile subscriber, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for them to sort of, you know, grow that footprint. What do you think? I, I think AT&T is definitely showing that they are refocusing a bit more on the network. Um, and making more investments on that side. Um, what's interesting is I do think that AT&T still has a considerable amount of debt um, through their series of acquisitions. Um, so I have a feeling that that $8 billion or $9 billion is mostly from their direct TV transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, uh, I, I do think that AT&T and Verizon both have considerable debts to uh, deal with. And I, I worry about what that might mean for consumers mm-hmm. as um, they start to try to figure out ways to pay, pay for 
a lot of the spectrum that they bought um, and, and these different media uh, organizations that they've also purchased over the last few years. So it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. But I do think that both AT&T and Verizon are also poised to take advantage of the breadth of 5G and, and, and all the business opportunities as well. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, Verizon and AT&T both have very strong um, focuses on, on business. And, um, and that's an area where T-Mobile is, tr you know, trying to rebuild itself, you know, with the Sprint acquisition. So, and, and from my perspective, you know, I've commented on, you know, this point on, you know, Forbes, you know, articles that I've posted, you know, from my perspective, 90 plus percent of um, the revenue opportunity, I believe the monetization opportunity for operators uh, for 5G will be in the enterprise space with industry 4.0 and other applications. And so they are both very well positioned, but to your point, um, they've taken credit facilities out. They do have debt. You know, most big companies do, you know, they, they do that judiciously. But, um, but I do like their cash position. And uh, I think, you know, with their Warner Media assets, they're very, very well positioned in the consumer space as well. So we'll keep our eye on that. But let me move to my, um, or actually your second topic this week. And you want to talk about China and base station counts. Yeah, so this has been a constant um, geopolitical measure of, you know, China's dominance in 5G or, or, or their own race with themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, what I find interesting is they are now claiming that they've deployed 792,000 5G base stations, which are not 792,000 cell sites because you can have multiple base stations per cell site, especially sure. when you're looking at you know, different carriers and such. So that is some, a number that was actually reported by the Chinese Ministry of Industry and Information Technology, which has been reporting a lot of the, these uh, Chinese industry 5G numbers. Um, and I think 5G is being used within China for political reasons as well. For um, sure. so I, don't, I don't think it's just the US is doing it. Um, but they did say that in addition to these base stations, uh, the company, the country expects that China uh, 5G mobile shipments uh, in China would account for 80% of all of the shipments in the second half of the year. So they're mm -hmm. expecting that mm, the vast majority of phones shipping in the second half of the year are going to be 5G phones. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that China is making a very rapid uh, adjustment towards 5G. And I have a feeling that with the exception of the very bottom of the market, it's all going to be 5G, which makes sense for a lot of reasons, because as you have more 5G devices on the network, you have better network utilization and uh, more spectral efficiency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. You know, and like, you know, and I also agree with your statement that uh, it's probably, you know, a political you know, statement on, on their part. Um, there's been this race to 5G, you know, you and I have talked about it quite frequently. I think both you and I have actually, you know, posted, you know, you know, contributions on various, you know, you know, sites as well, including Forbes to that point. Um, but, you know, where the rubber meets the road, really, it's not about access. It's about, you know, service delivery and digital transformation and that sort of thing. So time will tell if, you know, if China's, you know, perceived leadership with respect to, you know, deploying RAN gives it an advantage. So, uh, but, you know, in the U.S., OpenRAN hope, hopes to, you know, sort of close that very rapidly. So we'll, we continue to, 
keep our eyes, you know, on that. And so let me go to my third and final topic this week. And, you know, I read, you know, the, the news that, you know, Governor Cuomo in New York uh, passed, you know, helped pass legislation to uh, basically mandate a, a very low cost, you know, internet broadband subscription price for consumers that, you know, he and they deem as, you know, impoverished or underserved. Um, I think, you know, the, the guideline was $15 per month. Um, I think there was some discussion around the fact that um, they feel the state of New York feels like, you know, broadband is, is expensive relative to what others pay in other parts of the world. Um, this is a slippery slope from my perspective, because, you know, what I don't think, you know, government entities understand is the amount of investment that, you know, the, the Comcast, the pure play cable providers of the world invest in, in, in mobile broadband infrastructure or fixed broadband infrastructure. And then when you look at, you know, recent announcements from AT&T and T-Mobile with their 5G fixed wireless access, you know, it, it, it sort of makes me wonder. It's like, you know, you've got AT&T investing $2 billion to bridge the digital divide, provide, you know, very affordable services, you know, for, for subscribers. You've got T-Mobile, you know, we've talked about them on, on prior podcasts about their, their hometown heroes and their hometown experts program where they're extending that infrastructure, they're making incremental investments. And, and actually T-Mobile claims initially with their 5G fixed wireless access service, that you know they're going to cover 30 million subscribers in the U.S., 10 million of which are in you know sort of um, underserved areas. So I don't know if it's accurate to make a link between underserved areas and uh, people that um, don't make a lot of money. But mm -hmm. but you know my concern is when the government starts getting involved in setting pricing, that frightens me. What are your thoughts? I think this is a well-intentioned effort. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that if we were to do something like this, it should probably be done on a national scale, kind of like uh, the Lifeline program that AT&T has. Or like um, a fund, or, or funds created, right? So yeah, so there's like the Lifeline program, which I believe was actually mandated by the government and mm -hmm. basically allow affords for discounted phone service so that everybody who needs to have access to critical services over the phone right. can access it for $5 a month or $9 a month. And that was the Obama administration, right? I mean, I, I don't want to call, I don't want to be negative about it, but they call it the Obama phone, right? I believe. If I'm that's, not that's for cellular, but this is, okay. Lifeline is a wired connection. Got it. That okay. is a separate, this predates the Obama administration, if I recall correctly. Okay. Um, but basically, it allows for at least a discount of five to ten dollars. So five dollars on a phone bill, ten dollars on an internet bill, mm -hmm. and that would that makes internet much more accessible in terms of pricing. Mm -hmm. But I think that the problem is is that there isn't a cap on what the top end cost can be. So ten dollars off of fifty dollars a month is still not great for somebody right. who's living on the poverty line. So yeah. I think that there should be a base level of service that all operators offer and i would be okay with them capping it at 10 megabits per second and yeah. you know creating a base level of service because let's That's be honest right. yeah nowadays people spend way more time using data than they do the phone mm -hmm. and you know people are paying their bills people are doing a lot of things online and with the pandemic you want to make sure that 
um, people always have internet access and they can have a reliable internet access at a very low cost. So yeah. I think we need to shift a lot of the subsidies that we've previously had for landlines and phone and move it towards data plans and service like that. I agree, you know, and, you know, I'm actually writing a book called The Human Network, and I've talked about this on social media, and I've, I think I wrote a Forbes article late last year with an update. Um, you know, internet should be, you know, it should be a right, you know, that everyone has access to. And, you know, and if your income, you know, prevents you from being able to have, you know, connectivity, there should be methods and, you know, and, and programs put in place to, try to bridge that, you know, that issue. Uh, but I just like, again, my concern is like, you know, when a, when a government entity sort of gets involved and starts doing things like setting pricing, they're not understanding the overall investments that cable operators and mobile operators are making, you know, in, in kind of the, the, the larger, you know, sort of scenario. So like, you know, focusing on, you know, I think AT&T came out in support of like, if you're gonna go do this, establish a general fund, right? that, you know, that, that's a little more equitable and it's not like, you know, as, you know, sort of prescriptive. So it'll be interesting to see sort of how things unfold and, you know, we'll, we'll keep our eyes on that. But let's move to your third and final topic this week. And on a prior podcast, we talked about the proposed Biden administration multi-trillion dollar infrastructure package and how broadband is a part of that. Now mm -hmm. that price tag was a, north of a hundred billion dollars. And now Republicans have proposed something a little less expensive, but will it will it still sort of bridge the gap? Is it more efficient? Would, would love to get your take on that. Yeah, so my third topic basically is uh, today, the Republican, Republican I believe Senate um, members have proposed an alternate um, budget for infrastructure, mm -hmm. uh, reducing it from, I think, 2 trillion to 600 billion. Uh, and part of that reduction is reducing the $100 billion broadband initiative into a $65 billion broadband initiative. Mm -hmm. The issue is they're not really saying what needs to be cut. Um, I actually looked into the document um, that was being referenced by Senate Republicans, and it's two pages. So there's oh, wow. no way. Pretty so tight. they're just negotiating <laughs> on, the, on the top line right now. Right. Uh, just trying to get the number down. But yeah. what's interesting is, and this is probably one of my biggest pet peeves about the current situation with this negotiation. There are a lot of members of the Republican Party who did not see internet infrastructure or internet broadband as infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And they want, didn't want it part of the infrastructure deal. And now all of a sudden there's five or six Republicans that are, are about it. So I, I, I want to make sure that, you know, people understand that internet is infrastructure right. and in many cases a utility. And we've had this discussion before with the FCC mm -hmm. and whether or not the internet is a utility or should it be treated as one and yeah. how do we classify it and such, but it's infrastructure. And if it weren't for the internet and the reliability of our internet, we would not have survived this pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I think it's good that Republicans haven't really been too aggressive on trimming the fund from a hundred billion dollars down to 65, but I'd like to see what they're trimming because yeah they're not really giving us much detail. It's a two page document at this point. Right. And I'd like to see more details, but the fact that it's stayed inside of this infrastructure bill, I think is, is, is a, is an important point. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I agree. And uh, 
I think, you know, when you when you look at, you know, like the recent announcement by T-Mobile with their 5G fixed wireless access, I think, and then you look at like, you know, OpenRAN and, and OpenRAN's capability to lower CapEx, lower OpEx for operators. I think that there's, there's an intelligent way to go about it. I agree with you, not a lot of detail behind sort of the initial, you know, sort of proxy, but, uh, but it's politics, right? And, uh, and it, it, if witnessed, you know, looking back at the Facebook hearings and those sort of things, um, sometimes it's important to educate our, our lawmakers in Washington because some of them don't even know what the internet's all about, right? So I won't call anyone out in particular, but I think, you know, well, the, the nice thing about 5G, the fact that it's highly virtualized, you know, the fact that, you know, you've got Verizon and you've got T-Mobile and AT&T all, you know, that are gonna provide long-term fixed wireless access services. Um, that doesn't require necessarily um, a ton of fiber. Although, you know, when you talk to Verizon, they, uh, they and, and AT&T, um, they, they speak to like their investment in fiber is the backbone for all of that. But mm -hmm. certainly for last mile, um, fixed wireless access can, you know, can provide that, that capability quite cost effectively. Certainly in urban areas, you know, where you have higher subscriber densities, but I, but I believe like, and we've talked about this on prior podcasts, you know, um, the federal government, they're, they're putting a lot of, you know, subsidies in place to incentivize operators to sort of build out these networks in rural areas. And, um, and, and you know, I was pleased to see, you know, AT&T and, and T-Mobile step up recently uh, to actually add incremental investment into that effort. So, you know, I think, you know, long-term we'll get there. Um, it's not a simple solution. I think what, you know, what government entities don't understand is like just the billions of dollars that, you know, operators and cable providers, you know, invest in, in broadband infrastructure. So, um, but I'm confident, you know, with 5G that, you know, we'll be able to bridge the gap there. So, but Angela, you know, another great podcast this week. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone will like, out there would like to reach out to us on, and provide insight on a specific topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Will Town Tech and I'm at Anshel Sog. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week.